0: Well, good evening. You're dying to ring that bell, aren't you? I know. I know. All right. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, election that's coming up before we get into the, into the message. And then if I don't finish the, the, the message that I feel like God gave me tonight, then we'll, um, we'll blog that and then you can, you can pick it up. But uh, we're going to come to this table at the end of the service tonight for the closing song. And so I want to talk to you about what this table is about and why it's here. Uh, there are cards that are on this table, and the card is, is an opportunity for you to make a pledge. And the pledge is that you're going to vote in November. It's not about a candidate. It's not about a political party. It's not about us as a church trying to get you to pick one over the other. That's, it's, if you've been a part of City Life for any amount of time, you know we've never been about that. But what we have been about is that you should vote, that you should participate. And so I want to talk to you because I know this year for some of you it's hard to want to participate, right? For for some of you, you you've for some of you you've already decided I'm not going to participate. And so I'm hoping to change that in you over these next couple of minutes. I I, I believe, I believe one of the reasons why we have so many problems in our nation today is that we have a problem with citizenship character right, is that citizenship is a, is a lost concept for, for too many of us. And, and one of the reasons I believe that this is true is that on average, on average, for presidential elections, less, less than 50% of eligible voters vote. Less than 50%. I'm not talking about 50% of the population. I'm talking about people who are actually eligible to vote, on average, less than 50%. Now, for me, that's a symptom, and that symptom is a problem of citizenship character, of a low citizenship character. So if you're saying, so I've got some if you're sayings that I want to work through. If, If you're saying that you won't vote because your vote doesn't affect the outcome, then I would ask that you would consider this. Your vote ultimately is not about affecting an outcome, your vote is about citizenship. And it's about the duty that you have as a citizen. It's about the obligation that you have as an eligible voter and the citizen and a citizen of the United States that there is a responsibility that is incumbent upon you that you're going to participate and that ultimately your act of voting isn't about picking a candidate although we understand that's part of the process right I'm not being naive but what I'm saying is the transcendent purpose is that we are gathering together on that day every 4 years to celebrate democracy so you go to the polls because you're saying, as a citizen, I'm going to do my part to celebrate democracy in this nation. If you're saying that you won't, you're won't, you not going to vote because this is going to be your protest, right? A lot of people are saying, I'm going to protest the election this year and not participate, then I would ask you to consider this. Now, I'm not pulling any punches tonight, so I'm just telling you how I feel, right? And if you don't like that, then you can find me after the service and tell me so, and I'm going to hear you out. Protest vote is a lazy excuse to not do the hard work. It's a lazy excuse to not do the hard work. Every person who is a citizen of this country has the responsibility to find at least one issue that matters to you, to to find one issue. And I know that can be hard. You've, it, it takes conversation and reflection and, and listening and watching and dialoguing and, and sometimes arguing with each other a little bit and, and, and holding each other in a healthy tension. But at the end of the day, you've got to find one or at least a few issues that you would say, these matter to me. And then you go to the polls because you're finding the candidate that you feel is going to best represent that cause. So I'm just gonna tell you the one that I've picked, right? I'm not talking about a candidate. I'm not talking about a person that I'm endorsing. I'm just talking about you. For me personally, the cause that I've latched onto for this election, for me, it's about the Supreme Court that there's a a missing, right? Justin Scalia died, and so there's a seat that's open. And then I believe that over the next four years, the next president more than likely is, because of the age of the other justices, is gonna appoint at least one, if not two. Now, my personal opinion is that the moral climate of our nation has been affected by the Supreme Court more over the last several decades than anything else in our nation. And so for me, that's my issue, right? That's my cause. So I'm not saying that should be your cause. I'm just giving you that as an example. You gotta find your cause. You've got to find your cause. So for for me, this idea of a protest vote is a person saying I'm too lazy to find the cause that I've got to make my own and then I'm going to cast my ballot for the candidate that I believe that has the best opportunity to advance that cause. If you're a woman and you don't plan to vote, I would ask you to consider this. In August of 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified. And in November of 1920, it was the first presidential election in the history of this great nation where women all across America had the legal right to vote. And what I would say to you, if you're a woman, is that you should treat every presidential election for the rest of your life like it's 1920. If you were in 1920, I guarantee you're like, oh, I'm going to the polls. Because all the elections prior to that, depending on what state you lived in, right? different states had different rules, but at some point there was a time where, where, where no women were allowed and presidents were being elected that made decisions that affected you and you did not have a say. In 1920, women were saying, oh, I'm showing up to cast my vote to participate in citizenship. You should, if you're a woman, every presidential election should be 1920 to you. If you're black and you don't vote, I would ask you to consider this. In August of 1965, the Voting Rights Act was signed into law. And in November of 1968 was the first presidential election where all across America, every person of color had the legal right to show up at the polls. And so I'm just saying, if you're a person of color, you should treat every presidential election like it's 1968. The last presidential election before 1968, only 6% of blacks in America who are eligible, eligible to vote participated. In 1968, it almost hit 60%. And I would say that's still not enough. It's still not enough. If you're of the age 18 to 20, which is several of you in this room, and you don't plan to vote, then I would ask you to consider this. In July of 1971, I was four years old. The 26th Amendment was ratified. And in November of 1972 was the first presidential election in our country where adults who are 18, 19, and 20 were allowed to vote. Prior to that, you had to be at least 21 years old. So what I would say to you, if you're 18, 19, or 20, you should treat every presidential election for the rest of your life like it's 1972. I got one more for you. If you're anything else, that's the rest of us. (laughs) And you're eligible and you don't plan to vote, then I would ask you to consider this. Since the Revolutionary War, over 1.1 million Americans have died in U.S. wars. Let me read that number to you again. Since the Revolutionary War, over 1.1 million Americans have died in U.S. wars. You should treat every presidential election like 1.1 million people died for you to be able to show up on that day and cast your vote. Every presidential election, when you wake up on that Tuesday in November, you should say to yourself, self, 1.1 million people gave their lives for this thing we call a democracy. So what I'm saying to you is, How in the heck can you stay at home? How can you, right? All of us fit into one of these categories. So again, I'm not pulling any punches tonight. If you choose to stay home, what I would say is you have a citizenship character problem. And this last thing I would say to you is we spent this whole summer talking about your spiritual character, about 24 virtues. Don't tell me that you're serious about your spiritual character and neglect your citizenship character because for me, that's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. You, you cannot be serious about the character of Christ in your life if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ and neglect citizenship character. This is right in here with that. And what we're saying as a church, we are going to raise the level of citizenship character in people that call City Life Church their home by challenging you in moments like this. And so at the end of the service tonight, I'm just saying if you're here and you're eligible to vote, I'm I'm expecting you to come and pick up one of these cards. Now, these cards are provided by a political organization... Political organization have agendas. We're not connected to that organization. We're not sending these cards back to that organization. They were just gracious enough to let us use these cards. So this is gonna stay in-house. It's not going to anybody else. We're not sending this out. But what I'm asking you to do is you're gonna take this card. I'm gonna fill one out, right? You're gonna fill one out. I'm trusting that you're gonna fill one out, and you're gonna leave that card here tonight. There's pins all in the sanctuary. You're gonna there's a part that you take home, there's a part that you leave, and you fill out your name and address rest. There's some other stuff that you're going to fill out. And then as a church, we're going to stamp these and we're going to mail them back to you just before the election as a reminder of the pledge that you took. You tracking with me? We have a voice that needs to be heard. And at the end of the day, it's about you choosing to be a good citizen of this great nation. Father, I just pray for that moment that we're going to come to at the end of the service tonight when we close this time together in a sacred solemn time of worship. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts, that we would see a rise, oh God, in the character of citizenship in this church and in people all throughout this land. And that in time, Father, we're gonna see the change that we hope to find in this country that we love and cherish. In Jesus' name, come on. And everybody said, Amen. All right, come on. So we're in a series called Stranger Things, and if you've not been with us for any amount of time, it's kind of based on the show from Netflix that's been so incredibly popular, and, and, and what we've been using this show to say is that there are some things in the Bible that seem a little bit strange, and they're strange to us oftentimes because they're just unfamiliar, and that God wants the things that seem a little bit strange, that those things, we're supposed to expect them to be operating in our life, and that we should be celebrating those things in our life. At first, it might seem like they belong in an upside-down world, but God's saying, no, I want them to be present in your life, and the way they can be present in your life is because of the working and the power of the Holy Spirit in you, and so we spend a lot of time digging around in First Corinthians 12, and so if you're interested in that, you can get that on the podcast, and again, just like tonight, the notes for all of our messages are always online. So how about having Pastor Justin in the house last week? Come on, right? So good. His first time back since he planted the Suffolk campus, we're just excited about he and Stephanie and everything that that team is doing over there. So All right, so to get us, so tonight we're going to, tonight's the next to the last weekend of the... Um, Uh, sermon series, Stranger Things. So we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit tonight. And then uh, next Saturday, we're going to be talking specifically about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then after that, uh, we're launching, I think one is going to be one of the most important sermon series that we've ever done. We're going to do a series on race and politics. And so it's going to be a powerful season for our church leading up uh, to Thanksgiving. So come on, we like a little participation here at City Life. So when you hear the word Pentecostal, what comes to mind? Holy Roller. Yeah, come on. Yes, we are. Somebody else. Snakes. snakes, Yes. <laughs> not here. Those are not behind the curtains, right? I promise. Yeah, not right. Come on. that's true. Somebody else, Betsy. Out of, Out of control. Somebody else. When you hear the word Pentecostal, what do you think of? Joyous worship. Yes. Somebody else. Anybody? Power? Sally? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Was there another hand back here, Priscilla? Yeah, Azusa Street. Come on, the birth. Yeah, speaking in tongues, spiritual language. We're hitting that next week. Somebody else, Marvin? Oregon. The organ, yeah, right? A Hammond organ especially. I like it, I know. Christian. Pizza? Nice, because we like to eat here at the City Life Church. Come on, we're raising them right. Somebody else? Freedom. Freedom. Anybody else when you hear the word Pentecostal? Yeah? Dale? Loud? Loud? Yes. Right? So, so when you hear that, what, what you hear on that list, and, and, and we could keep going, is that we've had positive experiences in churches that have a Pentecostal theology, and for some of us we've had negative experiences, Right? That, that we've experienced in churches that have a Pentecostal theology. And, and part of this series is to say this to you. Don't let the negative experiences that you have had or that you have heard keep you from all the good things that God has waiting for you. Let's not let the mistakes that others have made rob us of the good things that are in this book that God says, I want to be a regular part of your life. This is my definition for what it means to be Pentecostal. That we have an unshakable belief that God still does the impossible, and sometimes He wants to do supernatural things through us, just as He did at the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. Pentecostal also means that we believe that the idea of exclusivity is finished. When Jesus came onto the scene in the Gospels, what we see is it's that he's the one doing supernatural things. And it's not too long before you see that he has has imparted a, a measure of anointing from him to his followers, and now his followers are doing supernatural things. But it's just them. And then you get into the book of Acts and you find that his followers, they begin to pray and and an anointing gets imparted to them. And now all of a sudden to them isn't just Jewish people anymore, it's anybody anymore. It's both Jew and Gentile. And Gentile in the Bible means everybody else that's not Jewish. And so what you see, this, this idea of Pentecostal is that exclusivity is removed and if you have made a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And you are now a candidate for God to use you in the way that you read about how he used others 2,000 years ago. All right, so let me read some verses to you that talk about some strange things that happen in Scripture. All right, you ready? John 18, 4 through 6. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them, right? This is the moment of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. In parentheses, the New Living Translation says Judas who betrayed him was standing there. Verse 6, as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground, right? And that's at the point you would think that they would have all just gone home, right? Right? That, that, that the power of Christ was so profound that in that moment they all fell in the face of that power, right? So you see that there are times where people are unable to stand because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the moment. Daniel 10, 7 through 11, only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. They, they knew something supernatural was going, so they, on so they ran. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted, and I lay there with my face to the ground. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling, to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God. It's powerful, isn't it? You're very precious to God. So listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. And when he said this, I stood up still trembling. There are times when the power of the Holy Spirit is so present in your life and so present in your moment that your body actually physically trembles. Acts 10, 44 to 46, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. I like this one. I call this one boisterous worship. That's what we are here at City Life. It's not because we're trying to be modern. It's not because we're, we're trying to draw in some, 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 some music, musical experience that the world has and that we're trying to replicate that. No, I, we, we say all the time, this for us is Davidic worship. We're not trying to be contemporary or modern. We're trying to be ancient And part of the expression of ancient worship is that it's boisterous, that it's loud, it's impassioned, it's expressive. There's instruments, there's dancing, there's the raising of hands, right? There's this idea that we are excited about who God is. It's what Pastor David was talking about in the close. Boisterous worship is something that wells up inside of us because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 12, 1 through 6, this boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Now I'm going to stop reading there for the sake of time, but this one is visions is that there's times where you're just you're in the presence of God and the, and, and the Holy Spirit begins to reveal things to you and to show you things. And in those moments, it's hard to even know, am I still here on this earth or am I somewhere else? This is my favorite one right here. Acts 8, 39 to 40. When they came up out of the water, right? This is Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Oh, yeah, Star Trek did not come up with this idea. The eunuch never saw him again, but went away rejoicing. He had a story to tell, didn't he? Meanwhile, Philip found himself far north at the town of Azotus. He's on this road. He's on the way to Egypt, Right? He sees the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading out the scroll of Isaiah, they have this amazing conversation, and the eunuch invites Philip to come up, and he begins to tell him about the prophecy of Isaiah is really pointing to Christ, and then this Ethiopian eunuch makes a vow of devotion to Christ, and then there's this water, which that alone is a miracle in the desert, right? And so they say, hey, let's get baptized. So they get down in the water, he baptizes, the. he's gone. People say, is there an elevator in this building? I say, no, but we have a ministry of teleportation here. This is one of those things where I'm like, Lord, just before I die, just one time. I don't even have to tell anybody it happens. Just one time, right? Isn't that strange to you? It's crazy. Philip is there. How do you think it was for the town of Azathos? They're walking around. All of a sudden, there's a man standing there. People are like, did you see that? Yeah, but I'm not telling anybody. Right? They're sniffing their cup. What is that that I just got? There's some strange stuff in here. But God's in hate. This is who I am. I transcend the laws of this universe. And I want you as my people to come to a place where you have an expectation that I'm going to do these things in you and through you. Acts thirteen eight through 12. These stories are awesome. Acts thirteen eight through 12. Again, you can get all of these online in the notes. But Elymas the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, Interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Ghost and he looked the sorcerer in the eye and he said, You son of the devil! Yeah, this is Paul, right? Mild manner Paul. You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud. An enemy of all that is good, will you not ever stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind and you will not see sunlight for some time. Instantly mist and darkness came over the man's eyes and he began groping around begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he came a believer. Of course he did, right? (laughs) For he was astonished at the teachings about the Lord. It's interesting there, isn't it? It doesn't say that he was astonished about the blindness that Elimeth suffered. It said he was astonished by the teachings of the Lord. See, because this working in the power of the supernatural is really just for one great purpose. It's for people to have a revelation that God is real and that What he said to Daniel, he wants to say to them, you're precious to me. And then all of a sudden their heart begins to open up to the teaching that the Lord wants to give to them. And sometimes it's teaching that maybe they've heard years ago as a child, but now all of a sudden their heart is fertile, right? And they begin to believe. It's great, isn't it? Does anybody here love these things other than me, right? When you walk into a store and you see one of the things on the counter, right? What, right all of us are five all over again. We go, even if the person that's going to help us is standing right there, how many of you, right? Tell the truth. How many of you? How many of you have said, can I ring that? Yeah, right? Oh, yeah. You know why we like that sound? You know why? I have a theory. It's the sound of people paying attention to us. That's why we like it. Because whenever we hear this, someone's waiting on us, right? It's the sound of someone paying attention to me. And if you have breath right now, you like for people to pay attention to you. I like for people to pay attention to me. And this is one of the reasons why churches that have a Pentecostal theology get into trouble is because for them, all of these things that we just read is about that noise. It's about people paying attention to them. And that motivation demeans the gift and the working and the power of the Holy Spirit in the moment. So for us as a church, we're not going to let... People's misdirected and misguided motivations stop us from believing and practicing and walking in moves of the supernatural. Our responsibility as leaders is to understand the person's motivation. And sometimes just because the motivation is wrong doesn't mean the gift isn't of God. And part of leadership is to bring discipleship to that person's life so that they can move in this gift that God has given to them, but no longer about ringing their bell, it's still about ringing a bell, but it's about ringing his bell so people's attention will be drawn to Christ. These gifts are so that people will focus on him and not us. But it's hard because we're all human and that's why community is so powerful because we let other people hold us accountable when our motivations are poor. And then we help each other get back into an alignment of humility so that it's about being a reflection of the true light that's going to transform the moment. You can come up and ring this after the service if you want to. All right. Acts 2-4. I'm just going to read this one just to set up for what we're going to be doing next week. Acts 2-4. And everyone present, not some, not a few, not the people on this side or the people on that side or the people that came from this family or that family that lived in this neighborhood or that neighborhood or were connected to this ethnicity or that ethnicity, everyone it says. Present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages. We like to use the phrase spiritual language, and I'm going to explain why that is next week, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. It can be strange, it can be odd if you've never heard anybody praying in a spiritual language. Again, the goal is not about drawing attention to ourselves, it's about pointing to God. We're going to talk about that at great length next week. All right, Luke 19. Luke 19. Verse 10, I want to read two important declarative statements that Jesus made about why he came to the earth. This sets up our understanding of what the first Pentecost was all about. Luke 19, 10 says, for the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Many of you are familiar with this. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's one declarative statement. It's not the only one. People get into trouble as they latch on to this one thing and they say, this is why Jesus came, but that's not the only verse in the Bible. There's another declarative statement that Jesus made for why he came. Matthew 16, 18 is another declarative statement about the purpose of Christ on the earth. Now I will say to you... Say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell were not conquer it. Matthew 16 is a powerful text for us. It's a declarative moment where Jesus tells us one of the reasons why he came was to establish something that he chose to call the church. Now, the whole meaning of that is another sermon for another time, but it's a declarative moment. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's given to us in Luke 19. And then in Matthew 16, he came to build his church, to establish his church. All right, now let's go back to Acts. Acts 1. I want to read through verse 15. All right, this is Luke gives us Acts. He also gave us the gospel of Luke. This is part two of Luke. In my first book, that's referring to Luke, I told you, Theophilus, that about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days, that's an important number, after his crucifixion, He appeared to the apostles from time to time, we call those post-resurrection experiences, from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which is what helps us to understand what he was saying you must wait in Jerusalem for. That's the promise that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And he's saying, you need to go there. You need to wait. It's coming. And you will be my witnesses telling people... telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So here's giving us the reason, primarily why the Holy Spirit is going to come. It's to supernaturally empower them to tell the world about Christ. Verse 9, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud. While they were watching, they could no longer see him, and they strained to see him rising into heaven. Two white-robed men suddenly stood among them and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Right? And they're saying, Because someone just rose up into heaven, right? We don't get to see that every day. Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven the same way you saw him go. What were they saying? They were saying, why are you standing here? Didn't he just tell you what you're supposed to go and do? You're supposed to go to Jerusalem. You're supposed to wait there as long as it's going to take and the Holy Spirit is gonna come. They didn't even know what that was gonna look like. They they had no frame of reference for what that was gonna be. All that they knew is that they had a promise and they had a promise from someone who had just demonstrated over the last 40 days that he keeps his promise primarily that he raised himself from the dead. So now they're filled with faith. If Jesus says something's going to happen, as incredible as the resurrection was, if he's saying something else is going to happen, I don't want to miss it. And that should be the sentiment of our own heart. Jesus died during the feast of Passover. His crucifixion was right in the middle of the Jewish festival and feast of Passover. Passover. And many of you are familiar with this. It's the story, right, where the the final plague in Exodus comes. It's the death angel and the firstborn of every household, even the livestock, is going to die. And the death angel passes over every house where the blood of a sacrificial lamb was placed on a doorpost. And the houses that had that blood placed on the doorpost, the death angel passed over. And that curse did not upon. Rest upon them. It is a prophetic foretelling of what Jesus does for us. That when he died on the cross, his blood was shed for you and for me. And when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, lots of things happen. But one of the things that's the most important, it is as though we are now the doorpost and the blood of Christ is on us, so that one day, even though we deserve to be judged, just like the Israelites deserve to be judged, right? Judgment passes over us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Passover tells us about the work of Christ, his sacrifice, and our forgiveness. Passover helps us to understand that Luke 19, where he said, I've come to seek and save the lost, was fulfilled at his death. Now, we love the imagery of the Passover, Many of you, you've heard that so many times on the first Saturday of every month when we share in the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we talk about that as imagery. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you could have explained that just like I did because we're steeped in the teaching of the imagery of the Passover and how that helps us to understand Jesus' fulfillment of his declarative statement that he came to seek and to save the lost. But he had another declarative statement. And that declarative statement was that he came to build his church. And that happened during the Feast of Pentecost. And, And that's, it's one of the most neglected teachings of imagery that's in the church today because Passover gets all the attention. Because everybody's drawn to the declarative statement that he came to seek and to save the lost. But he also, which was just as important to him, is that he came to build his church. And the imagery of the Feast of Pentecost is there to help us to understand what that's about. Penta means 50. So it was the feast that happened 50 days immediately following Passover. So if you're a Jewish person, in biblical days, there's the Feast of Passover, which is to commemorate, right, this moment where the, the, the death angel passed over, right? And so every generation for every year after that, the Jewish people were expected to celebrate that. Well, there's another feast. It's called the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is just as powerfully prophetic in its imagery as Passover is because it deals with the second declarative statement. So when you understand that Passover is when Jesus died, right, we just read in the text there were 40 days, 40 days of post resurrection experiences, and now we know that Acts chapter 2 picks up, as we're going to see in a minute, that on the day of Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit came. Well, if that's 50 days after Passover, and Jesus had 40 days of post-resurrection experiences that culminated in his ascension, we have a 10-day gap. We have a 10-day gap. What was happening in those 10 days? Those 10 days were the early apostles and all the rest that were gathered in the upper room were having church every day for 10 days straight. So don't complain to me about coming to church once a week. 10 days straight they were having church. Why? Because they were waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. And it came right at the Feast of Pentecost. You think that's coincidental? I don't think so. Because the, Ma- the law of Moses was given to the world, guess how many days after the Exodus? 50. Passover happens, the Exodus occurs, they leave Egypt, 50 days later, the law is given. It's one of the reasons why the Feast of Pentecost is so important. It's one of the reasons why the Feast of Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover because it is in part to commemorate the giving of the law. But just in the same way that we do the Lord's Supper not to commemorate the Passover that was, we do the Lord's Supper to commemorate the Passover that is because of the forgiveness that we walk in. We want people to understand that there is a celebration that you're supposed to walk in of the birthing of the church because of what Pentecost helps us to understand. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, not because Jesus was trying to point people again to the Mosaic law. He was trying to point people to a moment in history that was changing, that now we are delivered from law and now we enter into the era of grace. And that's the message that they're empowered to now go and take to the world. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost because now their message is no longer, you got to do all this stuff to walk in God's favor. Now the message is because Jesus did all this stuff, you get to walk in God's favor. It's a free gift. It's called grace. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost to celebrate the giving of the law, to remind us that the law no longer governs us. Grace governs us because of Jesus' death on the cross. But there's more the Feast of Pentecost was also an important celebration because it happened right in the middle of two harvests. See, in the autumn, they would plant both barley and wheat. And barley matures faster than wheat. And so during the Feast of Passover, part of the celebration of Passover is that the barley harvest was happening. And they would give an offering of the first fruits from that harvest. And then sometime later, the wheat comes. Guess when the wheat comes? Yeah, you guessed it, in Pentecost. And so Pentecost is a time that is right in between two harvests, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. You know why that's important? Because when God chose to reveal himself to the world, he picked a people that were not a nation until he made them one, and it was the Israelites. And they were the first harvest of humanity unto himself to reveal himself to the world. And then he reveals himself to the world. And the Jewish nation gives us our Messiah and our Savior in Jesus Christ. And he comes and he dies on the cross, right? The Passover happens for us spiritually. The church is birthed on the day of Pentecost to remind us that we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. But part of this declarative statement is also about the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is now to go out and gather the second harvest. Because that was the Israelites' reality In their moment of Pentecost, when they celebrated, there was one harvest that had already happened and now it's their responsibility to go out and gather the second harvest. And Jesus himself said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So that's why in Acts there, as we read, it says the Holy Spirit's gonna come and empower you. Empower you to do what? To go out into the world and tell everybody the message of Christ, which is the message of grace and forgiveness that comes through the cross. And there is a harvest that is supposed to be gathered in. We have been in this harvest from the moment the church was birthed 2,000 years ago, and we're going to be in it until he comes again. Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, now you know what that means. All the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's called Matthew. It filled the house where they were sitting. Tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. It sounds like something that should be on a show out of Netflix. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and did what? They began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability we're going to be talking about this next week. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Why? Because they had come for the feasts. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear what? Their own language being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These People are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the areas of of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking our language about the wonderful things that God has done. Because they're ringing God's bell. They stood there amazed and perplexed because it's a little bit strange. What can this mean? They asked each other. I love verse 13. But others in the crowd, right? There's cynics everywhere. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been around some drunk people in my life. And many of you know my story, and sometimes I was that person. And what I can guarantee you, that if you've been ever been around an intoxicated person, clarity of speech was never a description they would use to describe them. How about so-and-so, they were hammered last night, but they talked with such eloquence and clarity, Right? Funny stuff in here. They see these people, part of the reputation of Galileans is these are uneducated people. That's one of the reasons why that's pointed out there. They're Galileans. How could they be speaking our language? We know they've never been taught. These are unlearned people. But every person there. You know what the other miracle that's happened here that often gets overlooked? Everybody was all worshiping and celebrating all at the same time. Have you ever been in a room full of rowdy, loud people where everybody's talking at the same time? right? It's muddled, but not here. All of these people, out of this cacophony of boisterous praise and worship, every person heard their language being spoken. Powerful, supernatural, stranger things that's in this book, all for the purpose of revealing God to the world. And this series has been about one question that we're asking you. Will you open your heart to a place of willingness to say, God, however you would want to use me. However you would want to use me in the ways that you have said are true and right, find me willing. Even if it feels strange, even if it feels unfamiliar, here I am, use me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I want to talk about these cards as we close. It's not complicated, it's just two pieces of paper, and they tear away, right? You're going to keep this side, and you leave that side, and it becomes a postcard. We're not doing anything with these cards. If you're visiting with us, we're not going to use this as a mailing list to send you literature. You're not going to get fundraising information. You're not going to get a voter's guide. You're not getting anything from us except that card. We're going to put a stamp on it, and we're going to send it back to you. And this is your way of making a pledge. Why why do we have to do that, Fred? Why can't we just say we're going to do it? Because there's something about doing something on the outside that represents something on the inside. Those of you who are married... You're married because of the love that you have with each other, but you evidence that love to the world through the exchange of vows and a public service and an exchange of rings for most of you, right? Or some other symbol that you have on your hand that reminds yourself in the world. Right? There's 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 something about our humanity that needs tangible things to remind us of the commitment of the heart. That's all that this card is about. That's it. It's about you saying, I'm gonna be a citizen. It's not about the candidates, it's about the celebration of democracy Father we've covered a lot of ground together tonight and I I pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit is going to help us to digest everything that's been said and that everything that is true that is supposed to be worked into each of our lives Holy Spirit we know that you're going to knead it in like a baker kneading the dough You're just going to, you're going to work it in like the yeast that leavens the loaf in a good way. And it's going to change and transform our hearts and who we are. So as we step into this moment of worship, I pray, I pray that there's going to be a convicting work of your Holy Spirit for people to say, regardless of what they said before they came in here. Maybe because of something they've heard tonight, they're going to say, you know what? My citizenship character needs to grow, and I'm going to be a part of celebrating democracy in this great nation this November in Jesus' name. Come on and Everybody said amen. Stand with me as we worship, and if you want to, if you want to, you come and get one of these cards and fill it out and leave it with me tonight.